from Tokyo, Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, prehistoric food and Neanderthal intelligence. In addition, our guest host Mario will talk with Wes Moore about the other Wes Moore. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. Oh my god, it's Dr. Franklin. Yes. It's... You know, I, for some reason I thought you'd been abducted by aliens. It's been so long since we've seen you on the program. We're only like 0.11 second away from each other on the internet. So where you been? Uh, I've been around doing the bidding of science. You're an agent for... For truth and hope and the American way. <laughs> Hey, we should get funding from the Republican Party. Well, I don't think they fund our kind of science. They have their own kind of science. Yeah, their kind of science doesn't need data. Sort of like Chinese science. (laughs) Hey, lock them up if they get the Nobel Prize. (laughs) It's been so long, we didn't even do our annual Nobel Prize winning show, so we at least have to give a shout out to all the great winners of this year's Nobel Prizes. I'm getting that tingly feeling again. Who would have thought one layer would be worth the Nobel Prize, but there it was. Yeah, graphene. (laughs) And all, all you have to do to make graphene is scotch tape and pencil lead. It's just that easy. Uh, I, I think I missed out on the Nobel Prize when I was like three. And then, well, I guess that was for physics when you're talking about materials. They usually refer to chemistry, but the chemistry prize was also quite interesting. They awarded to actually two Japanese scientists and an American for their work on catalysts. So the idea is to create organic molecules, stuff we use for medicine, plastics, and other good stuff, but using palladium catalysts to accelerate these reactions. With their works, we have tons of fine stuff in our lives. Well, oh, but the interesting thing is that stuff's even getting better, because this uh, organic metallic stuff, some of the stuff is rare earths, and it's becoming harder to, to dig it up. So I think some of the more recent scientists have been working on like iodide, or uh, other types of catalysts which do not use metallics. And yeah, if those work out, then we don't need to get expensive catalysts anymore. I'm glad science is always on the march. And as you mentioned, we do have to mention the Peace Prize since if you're going to win a prize when you're in jail, the Nobel Prize is not a bad one. No, I tend to think the same values that underlie the Peace Prize are the same ones for science because it's about recognizing doing things differently, something that the establishment had not thought about before. Wow, that's all you have to do to win a Nobel Prize, to do things differently? Well, you also have to be successful. Well, I mean, for every person who does get it, there's probably a hundred who's just as knowledgeable and probably made equal contributions, but overall it pushes the fields forward. So it's a great motivation for young scientists to get involved. Exactly. Uh, you have a one in a hundred shot of contributing to something, and if not, you'll you'll get the shaft. <laughs> Go science! Hey. <laughs> kid, we kid. We were always excited when the Nobel Prizes come out, and so it was a great time. I think a lot of the prizes were really well-deserved. Good times, but, you know, look, science goes on, and we can't look in the past. We have to look to the future, which is what science does, because that is where we're going to spend the rest of our lives. Wow. Well, talking about the future, I recently came across one of our old friends, Michio Kaku. The world-renowned string theorist. 
Who? Yes. So apparently he's hitting the waves, and he's been in a lot of media broadcasts and whatnot. Yes, he has his own uh, radio program, I believe, Explorations. Yes. So one episode was about immortality, or the quest for immortality. Well, it was quite interesting that he's pointing out that the idea is that science does not prove any of this idea of heaven or the afterlife. So it's something that he's reminding people about how science should be based on evidence, not necessarily on faith. We have data, at least, and, uh, and facts and experimentation to back us up. Yeah, data's cool. So does he argue, then, that science can lead us to a form of immortality? No, he doesn't. But he says we should look for science as an inspiration to see how things work and not necessarily be obsessed with immortality, which which is a concept that there's another famous thinker who, who keeps touting, a guy named uh, Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil. Yes. I personally think he's a little bit of a nut, but he has an institute called the Singularity Institute, which is devoted to immortality. Well, I, I heard the singularity is near. Uh, I thought it was supposed to be like yesterday. <laughs> sure, like peak oil. <laughs> Well, it's like ditch day. It's always tomorrow. (laughs) In joke for all the Caltechers out there. Um, Millions of them listening to us. I don't think there are even millions that exist. Okay, 100,000? The last time I heard it was something around 220,000. I I thought maybe you knew of a Tecker that was cloning himself and creating a clone army of Techers to take over the world. Uh, Who knows? They're smart enough to do it. All right. Well, besides that, anything else going on in science? Oh, tons of cool stuff. And actually, my mailbox has just been filling up from the press release for uh, PNAS. Truer words were never spoken, my friend. There's a very interesting story about anthropology. Apparently, some of the recent findings suggest that prehistoric men were not simply meat eaters, but they actually created flour, not necessarily from wheat, but from roots and other plants, made some sort of bread-like food for their consumption. So what, what they did was they looked at some of the uh, prehistoric equipment, sort of like the mortar and pestle type of utensils that they used back then, and what they found was it pulled the marks of something that had rubbed against tree-like or fibrous materials, and they would also detect some plant materials, which they hadn't before. What they think ha- what happened was that previously archaeologists usually would clean their artifacts so carefully that it removed the plant materials, but now what they did was they examined the tools before they had been cleaned. They, what they found was ancient remains of plant material. Which indicated that that was used for those purposes. Well, you know, some archaeologists just felt they were not compelled by the previous theories, and they went back to examine some of these tools to see what traces they could find. Now it seems like it's very likely that humans actually made some sort of bread-like material back in those days. We're not just solely meat eaters. That's too bad, because, you know, meat's really good. Yeah, it is. kind of missed my 56-ounce steak. <laughs> we discovered the, the values of a little balance in our diets. Ah, uh, well, this is very cool, and this is from our uh, very favorite journal. The Proceedings. Of the National. Academies. Of Sciences. Penis. Well, I have another story about prehistoric man, and this one is actually suggesting that the Neanderthals were not quite as smart as uh, researchers were suggesting that they were. So they were just a bunch of monkeys. Well, no more intelligent than their old depiction of being brutish and dumb. So there's some traces of that still remaining. (laughs) 
But this uh, effort in uh, archaeology to attribute a lot of artifacts that have been discovered, uh, these ornaments, jewelry, or sophisticated tools, to, to make them smarter than they once were. A lot of this research has been derived from various excavations, some digs. Uh, in particular, there's one at a celebrated site called Grotte du Rhin in central France. And uh, at this particular site, they found all of these uh, various jewelry, artifacts, and tool artifacts that they seem to correlate with from the Neanderthal age. But now new research is suggesting that, in fact, the assignment of those particular tools to that is incorrect. Should have come at an earlier time? Well, they're saying it's actually much later, and that, in fact, all the artifacts that were being assigned to Neanderthals are just products of modern humans. And the idea is that a lot of these caves are so poorly... Uh, preserved and there's probably a lot of mixing going on perhaps humans went into the same caves that neanderthals used that it's really hard to distinguish which artifacts were made by neanderthals which were made by humans a recent research which was led by thomas higgum of the university of oxford in the U uk did some radiocarbon dating studies of sort of digs and artifacts and showed that most of these materials seem to be more from the period of modern humans than that from the neanderthals okay so again, it's just suggesting that the Neanderthals are not creators of these particular artifacts as we once thought they were. So does that have any implications for modern human anthropology? Well, it looks like it's back to where we were originally, this view that Neanderthals really were not as sophisticated and as smart as modern humans. Or maybe it's just an excuse that we haven't evolved enough yet. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we're devolving. I kind of like it, actually. <laughs> uh, certainly the tea partiers don't seem to mind. I still forget what these guys are protesting. <laughs> it's more Loss of entitlements, I guess. <laughs> you know, we're all entitled to our entitlements. It's written in the law, right? <laughs> so anyway, this is very fascinating work, and it was published uh, again in a recent edition of our very favorite journal. Oh, the Proceedings. Of the National. Academies. Of Sciences. Penis. It was so good, we had to have two articles from it. <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> Uh, and that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Mario will join us to talk with Wes Moore about the other Wes Moore. So stay tuned. Everybody. 
My name is Mario with an unbelievably special, special guest. He is the author of the book, The Other West Moore. He is a, an interesting gentleman, to say the least, and he has lived quite an interesting life, and I am really, really honored that he is on the show today. Ladies and gentlemen, Wes Moore. How you doing, Wes? Man, it's great to talk to you, man. Thank you. It is, it is equally great speaking to you. As I slide over and grab the book, I finished this book in a day and a half. <laughs> and, it, and the only reason it took that long is because I had to stop reading it to kind of catch my breath with, with all that was going on. You, like Nelson George, paint a really interesting picture of the East Coast. I'm a Midwesterner, so it's kind of hard. But I've had the benefit of traveling on the East Coast, but it's hard for people who are not from there unless someone can really paint a wonderful picture just to get an idea of what it's like living there. And you lived in that era where hip-hop was king yeah, and, and, and widely embraced and accepted. I wanted to ask you, before we get too deep into the call for action stuff, because I think that is the most important part of this book that a lot of the interviews I've seen you on, they miss that, and I want to make yeah. sure I don't miss that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. But um, what was it like, now that I can hear your voice, to live in that time and compare it to where we are now if you can oh it was it was it was intense because everything everything was just so new and different and changing so fast i mean and you think about it you know when i was you know growing up both in maryland and also in new york in, in the bronx during that time i mean especially i mean you talk about the the influence of, of hip-hop at that time i mean this was something that was still in many ways a, a burgeoning music form it wasn't the global phenomenon that it is now where it's you know in every corner of the earth and so you found people just really find trying to identify really trying to really grasp who they are and, and that and that sense of acceptance in this rapidly changing world and it's particularly in so many rapidly changing communities and neighborhoods because you know one of the things i try to detail in, in the book is is during the mid-1980s uh the bronx uh, and like many other cities uh around the time like Baltimore, like Detroit, like Chicago, like so many other cities, were going through this new phenomenon called the, you know, known as the birth, the birth of crack cocaine, and what that was doing to so many different communities at the time. So it was a fascinating time to grow up because you just saw how so many things were changing so quickly and how people were adapting to that change. The uh, other Wes Moore, the brother that is incarcerated, have you spoken to him since this book has been out? Yes, yeah, yeah. I've, I've spoken to him uh, a few times. I just actually just spoke with his mother last week as well. So we've had a chance to, to wrap since it's come out as well. What's his reaction to all this? Blown away in many ways uh, at just uh, you know how the story is caught, but because I, I think he realizes what what you know what a lot of us realizes this story is about much more than just these two boys, and it's about much more than than just Baltimore or, or, or one socioeconomic group. But it's really about all of us and the choices we make and the decisions we make and, and how that affects other people as well. He really had two real reactions to the book after he read it. And he read it a few months back before the book was even released. One was it just amazed him how amazed him how I got all the details right. And, uh, you know, I did over 200 hours of interviews with him and his friends and family, my friends and family, mm. just to make sure you're really getting it right. And the second one, after he read it, was said it amazed him how little that he's done with his life. Mm. Um, and that's what those really his two main reactions. There is a part of this book that, and I, I've been telling everybody that knows me, I'm like, you know, you really need to pick this book up. And I was fortunate enough to get a copy before you made the big television appearance circuit and, and being on Oprah and all that stuff. So I was telling, I was touting you for a minute, but I'm was suggesting that not just young black men but men young men period and young women should pick this book up and read it if for nothing else to see how easy it is to take 
something that could be going great and make a wrong turn in this direction or, or with the same same vigor make a right turn in the proper direction and and this is really serving as a great tool for that and i just wanted to tell you personally that i am about to read it again for a second time thank and, you and it's a thank powerful you so book much. one of the sections of this book which i actually find the most fascinating is after the epilogue and it's a call to action yeah and the call to action, which was written by Tavis Smiley, ends with him saying, The other West more serves as a reminder that ultimately the battle of life is won in the trying and in the serving. God will take care of the rest. And then you have a massive resource guide, tutoring organizations and entrepreneurship, different organizations that do a lot for young people all around the country. And what I, when I talked to your publicist, I said, you know, I'm more interested in the call to action. Because yeah. here, particularly in Chicago, we are under, uh, it's an epidemic of violence. And young people who have seemingly given up and have no desire to try to catch up. What is it that we should be doing? And first, I wanted to say thank you for bringing that up because it, to me, it is the most important part of the book, is the back of the book. And, and because one thing I did not want was for people just to simply look at the book and say, wow, that's an interesting story, and throw the book off to the side. Mm -hmm. I, I want this book to be something where people really understand their potency. And people understand if I'm willing to get involved and I'm willing, if I'm willing to give just a little, I can not only change a life, but I can change an entire neighborhood. I can change an entire community. I can change an entire city as long as we're willing to mobilize. And one of the things that was frustrating me as I was going through the process was I hear people say, yeah, well, you know, no one's doing anything about it. And that is patently false. It's just not true. There are people all over the country who are doing things about it. There are organizations all over the country. There are nonprofits. There are community groups. There are church groups and synagogue groups, whoever, who are out there doing the work. The, the problem is that we're not giving them the proper amount of support and the proper amount of shine mm -hmm. that they need. And that was something that was really important to me. So, you know, in addition to having a couple, a couple partner organizations that I have with the organization, like the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, like uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Veterans of America, and 100 Black Men, and people who are around the country doing this work in, the t in our toughest communities. Um, there's actually two organizations in particular, two nonprofits. One is called City Year, mm -hmm. which is an organization that gives young people a year of public service. And then also no another one called the U.S. Dream Academy, which helps children of the incarcerated. And they're actually receiving a significant portion of all book proceeds for all sales of this book. Wow. Because, you know, one thing I really, I wanted to be clear about is as these cities are going through challenges, and it's funny, I was just down in Chicago a few weeks back, and I was talking to uh, one of the senior people from the Chicago Police Department. Mm -hmm. And they were telling me just how difficult things are right now with violence in Chicago, and particularly as they're coming up to the summer months. And one of the things that we were talking about is how exactly can we mobilize communities to get involved? How exactly can we mobilize nonprofits to get involved and mobilize regular citizenry to get involved? Because we are the ones who can actually curb the violence. We are the ones that can actually do these type of things as long as we're willing to engage and as long as we're willing to involve ourselves in it. And that's why I think the book helps to show is just the, the, how big an impact just the smallest things that we can do in the life of someone can make and the decisions that they choose to make. We are with, uh, I almost called you the other Westmore. We are with Westmore. <laughs> uh, Westmore is the author of the book, The Other Westmore. Many, many accolades being thrown your way as a result of the book. And we're, we're now talking about the most important part, which is this call to action. When we look back 10 years from now with what you've written, when we have a chance to, to really examine what this book really meant or means to people, what do you want to see happen? Man, that's a great question. When I think about what I want people to think back about this book, I, I, I would, inspired when I hear some of the stories I've even heard thus far, 
when I, when I talked to the mother and the son who actually came up to me at a book festival in Maryland, and, and they came up to me and they said, you know, we're re actually reading your book together, and uh, at the end of it, we're going to talk about the lessons that we've learned, and then we're going to go to the back and find one of the organizations that we believe in, that you vetted uh, in, in the resource guide, and actually go volunteer together. Uh, or the young man I got a note from a few weeks back, a 14-year-old from Baltimore who was in and out of the juvenile justice system, and he said one of his older friends made him read the book, and he said it was the first book he's ever read from cover to cover. But he said, but he, said he wanted to write me a note because he said this book really forced him for the first time to really think about the man that he wanted to become. And, and the type of impact that he wanted to make for his family. So, so it's stories like that that I think mean the world to me because it means that the message, the larger mission of the book is actually getting out. And so when I think about 10 years from now, what do I want people to take away or what do I want people to learn? I want people to understand how little separates us from another life altogether. Mm -hmm. I, I want people to understand that, that identification and exploration into these communities is not glorification, but that it is important that we understand how these dynamics work because if we're not willing to do it, we're, we're just damning ourselves to repeat these type of tragedies over and over and over again until we're willing to actually take a step back and dig into communities and dig into places that we, we traditionally have completely mute to. And so that's what I'm really hoping, that this book generally starts a conversation that we can have not just amongst ourselves but amongst all of our neighbors about what are we going to do to address these problems. Well, let me tell you something. I got Scoop Jackson on my team. I got Kevin Powell on my team. And now I got you on my team. I'm on it, man, and I'm proud of you on it. All right. I'm proud of you on it. Anytime you want to come on the show, all you have to do is call here. Just call. Look, when, when I call you and say I need your help, just know that I am really serious. I really do need your help because we've got to figure out a way to quell this problem in Chicago, and I want to I want to kind of try to get this ball rolling. Like I said, I got three great guys on my team who know a lot of people, so I'm looking forward to and, and, it. And, and please know that I am on board, man. I mean, this is I, – I know for a fact that we can fundamentally change lives, and I know it because it's happened to me, mm -hmm. and it's happened to so many of my friends. And as long as we're willing to engage and as long as we're willing to get involved, then we can do it. And we want to change the whole definition of public service. You know, we think public service is either doing nothing or, or you know, or, or moving to another country and, and, you know, and doing it full time. There's a whole lot in the middle that we're missing. And as long as we're willing to engage and understand that public service doesn't have to be an occupation, but it should be a way of life, then we can really actually make it, we can really move the needle on this. So I'm with you, man. I'm ready. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Wes Moore, author of the book, The Other Wes Moore. You can get that book almost any place. And you're just listening to our special guest host, Mario, talking with the other Wes Moore. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Get back and reach the stars. Pull one down for you. Shining on the heart So you could see the truth Then this love I have inside Is everything it seems But for now I find So
All right, welcome back to the Grok Science Show. And now it's time for the question of the week. And here again, all the way from Dagobah, it's our good friend Jedi Master Yoda. Yoda, how are you doing? Mm, good food, good food. I've never met a finer connoisseur of food than you, Yoda. Mm, hunger in you, I sense. Mm, patient are you? Mm? I have all the patience in the world. Infinite time I have, but de- many demons I face. Hmm. Max is one of them, they, it is. Hmm. You. Max, he is a uh, force to be reckoned with. Hmm. <clears throat> Indeed. Diva Maxwell, you speak of. Hmm. Paradox of the second thought of thermodynamics, he proposes. Hmm. But really, a paradox, you see. Uh, <clears throat> can can anything violate the second law of thermodynamics? Boundary conditions, he's confused. Entropy, you lower it in one place, increase you must another place. Hmm. And that is the paradox of the Maxwell's demon. Hmm. Well, well, thank you very much, uh, Yoda, for uh, telling us about Maxwell's demon. Beware the dark sun, you must. May the force be with you. May it be with you, too. Hmm. <laughs> And that's all for this week's edition of Rock Science Show. We'll be back next week with more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.